Hello and welcome to the No Ordinary Tech Podcast, a safe space for real people in tech to engage in real talk. Sharing their hot takes on everything from the surprising technologies that you can use to manage your mental health to hardcore engineering opinions on how to write beautiful code. I'm your host, Georgie Barrett. I'm a tech journalist and broadcaster. And with me today is Alan Woodcock and Hilary Lanham, who will join me in talking about the minefield that is technical debt. How can engineers spend less time fixing unclean code or legacy code, more time doing what they love? Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully we're going to get some hot takes on how to deal with technical debt. But let me get to know you both a little bit better. What do you both respectfully do at Lloyd's? My name's Hilary Lanham and I manage a team called Engineering Excellence. I like the name. Thank you very much. Yeah, so our team focus on improving the engineering experience in Lloyds Banking Group. And we do that both proactively by bringing in initiatives that are going to help the engineers across the group. Uh, but also we do it reactively by really listening to our engineers and have them tell us what we can do to help them become more productive, to unblock them, what challenges they experience, and really try and get remove those blockers for them. Great. And Alan, how about you? Yep. So I'm the Engineering Services Director for Lloyds Banking Group, run a multidiscipline team, part of which is the engineering excellence work, but also looking at centres of excellence and best practice in the disciplines of software engineering, DevOps, quality engineering and tooling, and also run a platform team that looks after BPM and CRM type solutions. It sounds like you've got your fingers in many pies, Alan. I have my finger in every pie. (laughs) In every pie. (laughs) I like that. I like that. Well, you're the two perfect people to speak about this then. Uh, Between the two of you, you have over 50 years experience. That makes you both sound very old. You you, you look very youthful. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, But my first question to you um, is, what's the most challenging environment you've worked in with regards to updating legacy tech? Maybe, Alan, you've got some horror stories. Well, I don't think so much horror stories, right? So I think in reality, technical debt's nothing new. Right. It's been there. As you say, I've been doing this a very long time. Um, And where I think technical debt can be particularly prevalent is in organisations that have made a lot of short term decisions, probably the right expedient decision to make at the time. But what you then build is a legacy or a very common instance would be they'll take a package like a third party software package and they'll customise and customise and customise till you lose sight of what you originally had and how on earth do you get back there. So also in organisations that have gone through a lot of merger and acquisition, what you've then got is either best of breed, worst of breed of the, the two organisation software. So I think most organisations have technical debt. Most organisations have an aspiration to clear it. Mm. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, otherwise we'd all be doing it. Um, and I think that the hardest part is probably not just the technology that goes with it, but the culture that you need to instill to make sure that you're doing it the right way. Otherwise, you clear it and then it reappears weeks, months, years later. Yes. Hilary, I see your ears prick up when the term culture is used yes. there. That's such an important part of this conversation, isn't it? It is, because if you think about engineers by their very nature, you know, they want to go after the sexy, don't they? They want to get the new functionality in and and deliver those sort of customer-driven improvements. And actually, tech debt can be seen as pretty unsexy stuff and probably not recognised as being very beneficial. I think the same engineers, though, are the ones that suffer the greatest by having that tech debt there. So, unfortunately... If they want to be able to um, do all the the fun engineering stuff, they actually have to clear the the back debt of of what they've got to work with. 
And that's something that sometimes we have to encourage our engineers to think about. So that's a mindset shift. It is, It's actually yeah. looking at this work as, as, as maybe not as chory as what many people sort of view it as. Well, exactly. And also recognising that it's really important, you know, instead of just rewarding and, and appreciating the work that gets new functionality out there, rewarding and recognising the benefit of clearing the tech debt. I think it's really important for engineers to feel valued both ways. Absolutely. Um, I've got a stat here for you both. Maybe, Ellen, you can see if this resonates with you. Apparently, on average, engineers and developers spend 13 hours every week refactoring code, upgrading libraries, fixing unit testing, things like that. Does, does that sound about right for I think, your teams? I think the reality is you'll have some engineers spending 1% on it. You'll have some engineers spending 50%. Depends on the technology you're working with. If you're primarily working on legacy technologies, it may be more. If it's large-scale implementations, it may be more. But that's, that doesn't surprise me. And I think also one of the challenges is if you ask most engineers to tell you how much time they're spending on it, they wouldn't have a clue, right? Because right. it's just part and parcel of the things they're doing as part of their day job, So, which is why measuring tech debt is so important. Okay. So what is the overall impact of technical debt? Effectively, there's three things that technical debt impacts. So what do we all want to do? We want to be cheaper. We want to deliver change more quickly and we want to deliver better quality change. Technical debt impacts in all three of those areas. So if it takes you longer to write the code, therefore you are spending more person hours delivering the code, that's got a cost implication. Okay. These days, businesses want releases hourly, daily, weekly. If you've got highly complex code stats, you're doing releases monthly, quarterly or whatever. Right. So that's the impact there. And in terms of quality, the problem is, is the more... Um, your tech stack contains legacy, complexity, proliferation, etc. The longer it takes you to test it. And the danger then is if you take shortcuts with that test, you can impact quality as well. And I think the other impact, you know, Lloyd's are taking sustainability really seriously. And the more inefficient your code is, the more energy consumption it takes to run it. So by tackling our tech deck issue, we're also improving our energy um, consumption improving, reducing the energy consumption that will allow us to um, be more green in the long term as well. So it actually has quite a noticeable sustainable impact for the better. Absolutely, yeah. So, okay, you need to sort your tech debt out. Well, how do you go about doing it? Is there such thing as sort of clearing off your plate altogether? Um, and what is, how do you make sure that it doesn't re-emerge? So I think there's a couple of things you need to do, right? You need to understand where you've got tech debt. You also need to understand what caused that tech debt to occur in the first place. Because if you repeat a mistake, the same thing happens, right? So you'll just be, you know, effectively continuing with levels of tech debt. Also, it's important not to just treat tech debt in isolation. So if you are making changes to a system or process, why not, while you're making those improvements functionally, look at the tech debt at the same time and improve it? The danger if you said to every engineer, right, it's going to be tech debt Tuesday... Right. <laughs> Doesn't sound quite as, as fun as, you know, Taco Tuesday. No, no. Um, but uh, Tech Debt Thursday is no better either, is it really? Um, but effectively, the danger with doing that is 100,000 engineers will all go off individually and do their own thing. And the danger then is your some of the behaviours and results you'll see from that, actually, while some of them will fix some tech debt, some will have more. Right. So it's really important that it's not seen as just in isolation that, oh, I can just spend three hours a week fixing text debt and it will go away. It's got to become part of the way that you work going forward. 
So with new changes, processes, etc., you build code that's sustainable, um, future-proof, using the latest technologies, but also making the right decisions. And sometimes making the right decision might mean you don't deliver quite as quickly the first time, but what you're enabling you to do is deliver more quickly the second time, the mm. third time, fourth time, etc. You've got that blueprint that you Absolutely. can almost follow yeah, going yeah. forward. Yeah. yeah, and I think as well, in, in answer to your question about it stopping re-emerging, there are tools in the market which will tell you what code smells you've got. And they'll actually advise you on how to make your code more efficient as and when you're, you're doing your coding. So I think by choosing the right tools to have in your pipelines, um, that will also help you tackle, you know, making the problem worse potentially. The final thing as well is, is considering your strategy, right? If your tech strategy says that you will only accept certain number of vulnerabilities or certain type of code bugs, then by tightening the screw on your strategy, it will encourage better behaviours going forward as well. Amazing. So how much should engineers be empowered to do it themselves? And how much should it should it sort of be controlled centrally from someone like you, Alan? So you probably don't want me controlling it, but um, <laughs> there's a balance to be struck. I think it's really important to build on Hills's point that you need a strategy so everybody knows the direction in which they're heading, mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, you do need to empower engineers to give them the capability to innovate, but within guardrails, effectively. So, you know, we use terminology such as freedom in a framework. Okay. Whereby... The and does that framework come from tools or just from what you've laid out? So it will come from a mixture. So the tools will help enable and support the framework. But it's all about, for example, if you're going to be coding using APIs, use modern API practices, right? Don't reuse old legacy APIs, replace them with modern ones. But at the same time, don't build 37 new APIs that will do the same thing. Let's reuse. So reuse will be another key part. So I think once you've got the strategy in place, then effectively you can empower engineers because they are innovative, right, to find the best way for their technology to resolve the debt. Because if you've got tech debt in a Java stack versus in a .NET stack, you will have to use different tools and techniques to resolve it. And building on Alan's point earlier about, you know, the scattergun approach of resolving tech debt, I think it would be a better idea to set sort of a, a function or a, a unit and to divert all of the energies into that particular area to see those improvements, because that way you'll be able to make a real difference to one area and, and you know, really make that a better place to code and be more efficient, etc., rather than the scattergun approach, which might have such an infinitesimal small impact on everything. It really doesn't add a huge amount to it, the overall picture. Okay, so scattergun approaches may be a, a mistake that you see some organisations make. Are there any other sort of common mistakes? So I think one of the other common mistakes is I'll buy a tool and that'll fix it for me. <laughs> okay. Right, which you see, and there are tool vendors out there who will sell you tools that will allegedly resolve all your technical debt. Hate to disappoint people, but they don't do that. Oh, no. So, you know, if you've <laughs> gone and bought one, well. I'm really sorry for you. <laughs> um, so to me, it's all about how you work, the process you follow. Tools can help, right? Tools can help you, I don't know, work through your code, identify shortcomings, identify improvements. But just applying a tool will just simply give you the results of that tool. So it's about also, and I think this is really key, is changing the way that you work. So once you know how to resolve the technical debt in your code the trick is one you tell everybody else how you've done it because large organizations need to share knowledge mm -hmm. but also then you embed that in your future ways of working 
such that if you found a great new practice for, I don't know, writing in microservices or whatever it might be, then effectively that becomes the way you do it going forward. So back to your earlier point, you don't end up with, great, I've got a 50% reduction, and then in two years' time it's crept up another 25 30%, etc., and you have to start again. So you mentioned percentages there. Is that how you'd overall measure success when it comes to dealing with this stuff? I think there's a number of ways of doing it. If you can turn anything into pounds, that gets everybody's attention, right? I think to Hills' great point earlier, sustainability, if you can turn that using your carbon calculators, that I think is really powerful. And obviously, for all organisations, not just our own, sustainability is a key measure. I think the danger is... You do need to measure, because if you don't measure something, how do you know if you're improving? But you can create a cottage industry of metrics and measurements. The important thing here is the aptitude and attitude to want to fix it. Find a simple way to measure it. So keep the measurement really simple. So percentages would be a way of doing it. Because what you don't want to say is, right, I want to have reduced my number of lines of code by 1,500 in the next three months. That wouldn't necessarily get you the best rate of return. Whereas if you said we've got a 10, 15, 20% improvement over a three or six month period, that's more tangible. If you can turn it into carbon numbers or you can turn it into pounds, all the better. Because then when you're talking to the business, and you know this does need explaining and translating to businesses sometimes, then you're talking in currencies that they'll understand. And I think the other thing we need to do to measure is to baseline. So before you go and say, I'm going to tackle my tech debt, take a moment to understand what what tech debt do you really have? What's the nubbin of the problem we're trying to solve here? And then understand what that costs or what impact that's having as a baseline. Only once you've got your baseline, then start improving it. And then you've got that way of measuring success against that baseline. Amazing. And we, we, you know, we've touched upon some ways of, of successfully implementing this. Have you got any other sort of top tips when it comes to changing culture or mindset around tackling tech debt? You know, make sure you understand what your tech debt is. Don't tackle it in a scattergun approach. Make sure that you, un, you know, focus all those fantastic problem solving and creative engineers at the same problem to see real change being made. And speak to your business. You know, your product owners need to understand the pain of tech debt as acutely as your engineering leads do. And again, recognise and and appreciate the efforts to clear tech debt from your engineers to reward that good behaviour culturally. Yeah, I think the recognition and reward is really important. Okay. Because what kind of rewards are you talking here? So we're not talking large sums of cash. (laughs) Acknowledgement. (laughs) Also, I think what's really important, so... There's different ways and means of rewarding people, right? So for some, it's a recognition of that great technical capability they brought to the bank. So what what, what we do, for example, in our organisation, if somebody has a blinding idea, a great way of doing something, we can provide them a platform where they can share that across the bank. And we've got thousands of employees, literally. So some of it will be that sort of profile recognition. Obviously, nobody minds a voucher every now and then. Um, creating some sort of competition Got to be careful with that, though, because engineers are not only good at fixing things, they're great at gamifying at the same time, let's be fair. Um, So to create some sort of competition, reward recognition, but an awful lot is focusing on not just the technical, but the behavioural. So in some ways, even if somebody has come up with a technical debt solution that perhaps didn't prove to be the best, it's as important to recognise people's trying, being bold um, and effectively making the effort as it is sometimes recognising those that have delivered success. So each week on the No Ordinary Tech podcast, we have a hot take, Okay. 
Our hot take this week is this. Giving engineers more ownership over their tech stacks is the only surefire way to eliminate technical debt. Now, Alan and Hillary, you are perfect to say whether you agree with this or not agree with this. What's your take on this week's hot take, Alan? So I think there's an element of truth in there. (laughs) Right. But I think you need to build on that. So it's really important that developers feel accountable for what they're putting on their tech stack and what they're supporting in their tech stack. But at the same time, it's really important that developers, engineers know the framework within which they've got to operate. What you don't want is to make a thousand engineers accountable and a thousand engineers go away and do a thousand different things, because what you'll end up with is more tech debt than you started with. So... I think it's really important they feel accountable, feel empowered and are given the time to work on it. But it's got to be done within a framework context such that you get consistency, standardisation, so you get true benefits at the end of it. There have to be some parameters. There's always got to be some parameters, yeah. Yeah, and and I would say that it's slightly unfair perhaps to give such empowerment to an engineer because... You've got to think about business delivery um, implications of that. You know, what's the financial implication of moving on to remove some tech debt um, above getting a deliverable into life? You know, so whilst an engineer might really want to do the right thing for valid reasons, there may be occasions where it's not quite the right time. So as much as engineers should want to do it and, and, and that's the right thing for them, they sometimes may not be able to. So you say they want to be able to do it. Sometimes people view sorting out tech debt as sort of the thing they don't want to do. How do you get over that, Alan? So I think there's a couple of things there, right? I think it's the way that you classify it. So if you said to somebody, all you're going to do for the next six months is clear up the tech debt on your estate that's been there for 25 years, there's very few engineers that would want to do that. If you said to the engineer, I want you to modernise your application, I want you to effectively redevelop your code in such a way that it's future-proof for the next five years, and in doing that, you remove any legacy issues that slow you down, make it more expensive, less sustainable, etc., that's a much more attractive proposition to an engineer. What's the appetite like among your engineering teams to write what I like to call beautiful code? So every developer thinks they write beautiful code. Okay. Um, (laughs) It's like everybody thinks their own children are beautiful. Exactly. Most people do. (laughs) Um, So I think in terms of effectively, part of the challenge will be is will an engineer or a developer know what beautiful code looks like? Particularly because technology has advanced in such a way and the tooling has changed. um, Effectively, what would have been beautiful code 10 years ago is no longer beautiful code today. So it's really important, and that's why a learning culture is so important, that engineers recognise what the current art of the possible could be. So, And this is why you have a diverse workforce, because you bring in people that are have only worked on the latest technologies. They will code in a very different way. And that's why things like communities and guilds are really important. So you get like-minded developers and engineers together to share their experiences. So I think, absolutely, most developers will tell you they write beautiful code, with the one exception of when they are told that that delivery needs to be in by two weeks' time, regardless of what happens. And if you turn around and say, and that's the challenge they've got, right, which is beautiful code will take six weeks, but I can get you something over the line in two. Mm, It's that constant trade-off between... Turnaround speeds and... And that's a cultural thing, right? That's an organisational thing. Sometimes you have to make expedient decisions, right? But I think if you, as an engineer or developer, can 
best articulate what happened as a result of you writing beautiful code and explain that in a language not just that technologists will understand but that the business will understand as well you'll probably get yourself the time that you need ultimately as long as engineers are proud of what they produce you know what what's beautiful to one person do you know what i'm saying so you know as long as they feel like they have done their best to answer the brief and to meet the requirements then you know Hopefully that will be beautiful for for them and for Lloyds. Well, on that note, Alan and Hilary, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you also at home for tuning in. Do make sure you join us for our next episode of the No Ordinary Tech podcast, where we'll be talking about the fascinating link between AI and behavioural finance and how it can help us all manage our money from day to day. And if you want to hear more about tech and transformation roles at Lloyds Banking Group, go to lloydsbankinggroup.com forward slash careers.